Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the Three Stooges. Now let's continue with our story about the Three Stooges. By the late 30s and early 40s, the Stooges were the most popular act under contract at Columbia. But studio head Harry Cohn was not above nickel and diming the trio during contract negotiations. Cohn, known for such behavior as firing employees who left their office lights on after leaving for the day and routinely belittling and tormenting and unsuccessfully sexually harassing his biggest female star, Rita Hayworth, would spread rumors throughout the studio that the two-reeler department was on the verge of permanent closure. Every year, Moe, who handled business affairs, would sweat out whether the Stooges would be renewed. Feeling that they were fortunate to get an annual extension, he accepted only a modest increase in salary, unlike most stars who usually demanded and got lavish increases. Moe and the other Stooges had no idea how popular they were and how much money Columbia made off of them. Eventually, in the late 40s, Howard also discovered that Columbia used their pictures as leverage to force movie theaters to accept many mediocre Columbia films, or else the studio threatened to withhold the Stooges. Typically, during this time period, the trio were paid about $20,000 annually, split three ways. A nice living, but certainly not what they should have received. The 40s also brought a political message to the Stooges' efforts. Although Hollywood produced both serious drama as well as outright parody of Hitler and Nazi Germany, most notably in The Great Dictator, starring Charlie Chaplin, the Stooges released You Nasty Spy in January of 1940, a full nine months before the Chaplin effort. Three ministers of the country of Moronica are plotting to replace the king with an individual compliant enough to follow their orders. The Stooges appear as unwitting wallpaper hangers named Hailstone, played by Moe, Pebble, played by Larry, and Gallstone, played by Curly. And all are eventually appointed dictator, minister of propaganda, and field marshal, respectively. With their new rulers, Maronica attacks Bologna, invades Starvania, and participates in the peace conference of Umfola, where Moe demands a corridor through Double Crossia. Moe even dons a Hitler mustache and begins reciting nonsense and malapropisms before all three are fed to the lions. Both Moe Howard and Larry Fine called this their favorite Stooge short comedy. The Stooges' consistent success was a double-edged sword that definitely altered their lives, especially Curly. He was never comfortable with his persona as a lovable dunce and his on-screen appearance with hair completely shorn. His unhappiness manifested itself in heavy drinking and overeating that was so intense it began to affect his personality and ultimately his health. Off-screen, he was quiet and introverted, typically only reverting to character when socializing in the presence of Moe and Larry. 
Curley's relationships with women would also contribute to a general personal deterioration, his marriages frequently impulsive and expensive. First married in 1930, this union was so brief, its official end is not even known or recorded. In June of 1937, Curley married one Elaine Ackerman. Their daughter was born a year later, but the marriage dissolved in divorce in 1940. This allowed Jerry Howard to return to a lifestyle of clubbing and late-night hours that led to hospitalization in 1945. Admitted to Santa Barbara's Cottage Hospital, away from the glare of Hollywood's gaze, Curly Howard was diagnosed with dangerously high levels of hypertension and obesity. In an attempt to curtail self-destructive behavior, Moe set up his brother with an attractive theater owner's daughter, Marion Booksman. And only two weeks after their introduction, they were married in October of 1945. The marriage lasted three months, another expensive settlement adding to Curley's personal deterioration. Coinciding with these personal challenges, Curley's physical condition began to affect his film performances, becoming increasingly evident on film. He could no longer incorporate the physicality of previous antics, pratfalls, and improvisational floor spinning. Heavy drinking also removed his ability to make the high-pitched sounds that initially made him unique. He barely could remember his lines. On May 6, 1946, while literally in the middle of filming the Stooges' 97th film, Half-Wits Holiday, Howard suffered the first of several devastating strokes. This medical event occurred with the movie almost complete. The ending needed to be changed so that Larry and Moe led a massive pie fight, the cast having no idea that Curly was incapacitated. Although Moe did not rule out Curly's eventual return, he immediately floated the idea of replacing him with Shemp Howard. Shemp was in the midst of a reasonably successful career as a contract player, appearing in numerous studio-produced comedies, most notably in The Bank Dick with W.C. Fields, but he quickly agreed to replace his brother in what was initially supposed to be a temporary fix. As stipulated in their original agreement, Moe submitted a letter to Curley, formalizing Shemp's temporary replacement, which was signed in September of 1946. Initially Larry Fine's idea, each of the trio agreed to kick in $50 a week for the entirety of Curley's absence. Publicly, Moe Howard was circumspect about the situation, joking in the press that his brother was merely taking a rest and that Curley liked nothing better. Although meant to be humorous, these words were prophetic. Curley did find some stability in a 1947 fourth marriage to Valerie Newman, a 32-year-old widow who also had three previous marriages. Fortunately, Valerie was more considerate than some of her predecessors, actually nursing her husband through some tough times. Conversely, Columbia was rather cold-hearted, quickly billing Moe, Larry, and Shemp as the original Three Stooges, a designation that was actually historically accurate. From a production perspective, although unable to duplicate the unique persona of Curly, Shemp was an experienced and disciplined actor who was always prepared and professional, and he would do anything for a laugh. One of the most iconic Stooges' efforts ever, Brideless Groom, filmed shortly after Shemp replaced Curly, featured nonstop violence directed mostly in his direction. The plot concerns his efforts as a vocal instructor, Larry serving as pianist for an especially untalented and unattractive Miss Dinkelmeyer. 
After Shemp's tutorial ends and the unfortunate Dinkelmeyer exits, he is suddenly confronted by Moe, who tells him that his uncle Caleb has died and left him $500,000, providing that Shemp is married within 48 hours of reading Caleb's will. A telegram underlines that Shemp actually has only seven hours to make the deadline. Sequentially, after Shemp admits to having a black book filled with female telephone possibilities, both Moe and Larry grab him by the scalp and drag him towards a phone booth on their hotel floor. When these calls lead to failure, Moe intercedes, only to hopelessly entangle the both of them to near strangulation. Escape occurs by destroying the phone booth completely. With time running out, the Stooges return to their hotel room, discovering that a remarkably attractive woman is checking in across the hall. To make a realistic proposal, it is decided that Shemp needs an immediate makeover. Moe and Larry prepare Shemp's wardrobe, a process that includes furniture broken cranially, sewing needles thrust into Shemp's calves, and boiling water equally distributed facially. Eventually, Shemp is launched across the hall, ushered in enthusiastically by the gorgeous occupant who greets him affectionately as Cousin Basil. A confused chimp tries to explain who he actually is, but a ringing phone intercedes. Billed as Lulu Hopkins, this role was played by statuesque beauty Christine McIntyre, who realizes that Cousin Basil is on the phone and Shemp is not who she thinks he is. Immediately irate, the script called for her to slap Shemp out of her hotel room. In rehearsals, she found it difficult to even simulate the violence called for in this scene. After a few tentative slaps, Shemp asked her to be more realistic so that the cast and crew could finish filming for the day. Honey, he said, if you want to do me a favor, cut loose and do it right. A lot of half-hearted slaps hurt more than one good one. Give it to me, Chris, and let's get it over with. This properly resonated as Christine began slapping Shemp so hard she knocked him into a chair. He sprang up only to get repeatedly slapped back down again, the exchange culminating with Lulu throwing a haymaker that actually hit Shemp so hard his nose was actually broken, adding realism to him crashing through the door and out into the hallway. Suddenly, Miss Dinkelmeyer returns and Shemp is forcefully persuaded to propose, only hours away from his marriage deadline. Appearing before a justice of the peace, Moe receives a phone call warning him that all of the women who Shemp phoned earlier have read in the newspapers about Shemp's potential inheritance. They are due to arrive at the justice's locale at any minute. When asked to produce the ring, Shemp manages to inadvertently toss it into the interior of a nearby piano. Predictably, before the jewelry is retrieved, the lid is repeatedly dropped on Shemp's head by an impatient Mo. Eventually, Shemp is propped up and ready to proceed. With an enthusiastic, join hands, you lovebirds, the JP prepares to begin the ceremony, only to be abruptly interrupted by five women who are now also intent on marrying Shemp. In the ensuing fracas, one especially aggressive female prevents the justice from continuing by slamming an occupied birdcage over his head, knocking him insensate. She then places Shemp's head in a vice, demanding that he marry her. With each refusal, she gleefully tightens the device, Shemp eventually reluctantly succumbing to her demands. With the other women and Larry and Moe involved in in a chaotic brawl that involved everything from carbines to a bear trap predictably applied to Moe's posterior. 
Shemp is saved when he is knocked cold by a vase hurled across the room and his antagonist storms after the source of this intrusion. Miss Dinkelmeyer seizes her opportunity and the justice of the peace, after a mispronounced and less enthusiastic hold hands you love birds, manages to marry the two just before the six o'clock deadline. As Shemp returns to his senses, he is congratulated, and turning his gaze to Miss Dinkelmeyer, his predicament becomes clear as the film ends with him shouting for help and attempting to flee. Brideless Groom went on to be one of the most famous Stooges episodes in the group's career. The comedy not only featured one of the first appearances by character actor Emil Sitka as the Justice of the Peace, it was also one of four Stooge films that inadvertently entered into the public domain when a copyright was not properly renewed. For several decades, television stations repeatedly ran the episode across America, generating unusually constant exposure and eventual status as a quintessential Stooge classic. With these types of efforts, Shemp Howard was able to help the trio to successfully continue after Curly's sudden departure. This was fortunate as Curly proved unable to ever return, appearing only in two brief cameos, the latter appearance in 1949 so poor that it was cut from the film Malice in the Palace. A second stroke initially put him in a wheelchair, and while a partial recovery allowed him to become ambulatory, any resumption of his film career was unthinkable. His health continued to deteriorate, and institutionalization, first at the Motion Picture Hospital and then in a succession of nursing homes selected by Moe. On January 18, 1952, bedridden and no longer able to even speak, Jerome Curley Howard passed away at a local nursing home that sounded like a fictional setting in one of the Stooges' films, The Baldy View Sanitarium in San Gabriel, California. He was only 48 years old. Despite Curley's tragic end, the early 50s were a period of relative stability for Moe, Larry, and Shemp. They continued grinding out their contractually mandated eight Columbia shorts each year that placed them among the most popular short comedy acts of the time period, also consistently receiving awards from motion picture exhibitor organizations which commemorated their popularity on an annual basis. Although their lifestyles were not as unstable as Curly's, the Stooges did lead relatively quirky existences. Larry Fine married his wife, Mabel, a fellow vaudevillian in 1926. Because of their transient lifestyle and Mabel's disdain for housekeeping, they lived in hotels for several decades, first in Atlantic City and then the Knickerbocker Hotel in central Hollywood. It was not until 1945 that Larry bought a large home in the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles. A profligate gambler and a soft touch who spent money as soon as he got it, Fine wisely left business affairs to Moe. Happy-go-lucky, he spent most of his time on the set organizing card games in between filming. After years of enduring the peaks and valleys of show business, Shemp Howard, most likely through necessity, also developed a happy-go-lucky approach to life. After he split from the Ted Healy Stooges in the early 30s, his existence pretty much depended on whether Universal picked up his annual contract playing dozens of character roles in B-movies until rejoining the Stooges in 1946. He and his wife Gertrude lived in nice, but certainly not opulent, surroundings in North Hollywood. Like most Americans in the 50s, he loved boxing and frequently attended matches across Los Angeles. 
despite his on-screen persona as a physically harsh and frequently bumbling buffoon, off-screen Mo Howard was introverted, serious, and quite businesslike on the set, possibly because he felt the responsibility of making the decisions that guided the professional careers of the entire group. He did not share the financially carefree attitude of the others. He was deeply devoted to his wife and family and was especially bothered by the travel and lengthy separations that were a part of the annual live show tours that became a major part of the Three Stooges' interaction with the public. Although they could never have predicted the eventual effect that television had on their legacy, unlike many film industry professionals, the Stooges also enthusiastically involved themselves with television, appearing on TV shows with pioneers like Milton Berle and Maury Amsterdam. They even filmed a television pilot in October of 1949, but when Columbia heard about it, the studio threatened to sue everybody involved and cancel their movie contract, which supposedly forbade such competition. The Stooges relented, and the pilot was never broadcast. Despite the Stooges' consistent popularity, Columbia also scrimped wherever possible, cutting back on production and staff until Jules White retained only a skeletal crew, and much of the final film footage for new films was scavenged from outtakes. The studio also jumped on the 3D film bandwagon, releasing Two Stooges' efforts during the short-lived fad. While the response to these efforts was lackluster, the Stooges were pleased to receive their annual contract renewal on November 22, 1955. To celebrate that evening, Shemp went to a boxing match at the Hollywood Legion Stadium with two friends. Afterwards, all three men were heading to Shemp's house in a taxi cab when, literally in the middle of laughing at one of his own jokes and lighting a cigar, Shemp Howard collapsed. He was dead on arrival at the nearest Burbank hospital. Although both Larry and Moe were personally devastated by Shemp's death, they also faced several professional dilemmas posed by their partner's demise. Not only did Columbia insist that they would hold both men to their contracts, they balked at the concept of just Moe and Larry performing as the Two Stooges. Luckily, Jules White had already assembled some partially shot footage of Shemp for the 1956 set of films. Four of the films had actual footage of Shemp. The other four featured a stand-in named Joe Palma, shot so that his face was not visible. While this was not the first time this process was implemented in film, and Palma was not the first actor to impersonate another performer in such a fashion, eventually this type of stand-in was dubbed in Hollywood as a fake Shemp. Some other famous examples of this technique occurred with Oliver Reed and Gladiator, Gene Hackman in Superman 2, and unintentionally hilariously in Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space, in which Tom Mason continually held a cape over his face to impersonate the recently deceased Bella Lugosi. While the slapdash process that allowed the Stooges to fulfill their obligations in 1956 worked reasonably well, both Moe and Larry knew they needed a longer-term solution. They wasted little time in settling upon a Columbia-contracted actor, Joe Besser. Besser was probably most famous as a regular on the Abbott and Costello show, playing Stinky Davis, an annoying little Lord Fauntleroy-attired man-child. By then, the Stooges were relying on audiences made up predominantly of children, their comedies playing to matinees and considered not-sophisticated adult comedy. 
already realizing that the overt violence of previous years was not appropriate for a younger audience, and also acknowledging Besser's contractual stipulation that he not be subjected to even simulated violence, the Stooges headed in a different direction. At the time, the conventional wisdom held that Besser provided a much-needed injection of new energy and variety, but that was not enough to convince Columbia to continue to renew the Stooges franchise. By December of 1957, the three Stooges filmed their last two-reeler, entitled The Sappy Bullfighters. Although the studio prolonged the actual release of new Stooge material until June of 1959, their remarkable Columbia run was finished. Although Moe and Larry certainly had a cordial relationship with Joe Besser, he declined to join them for a subsequent personal appearance tour, in fact never appearing with them professionally anywhere but on film. Pushing 60, Moe considered retirement, or at least retiring the Three Stooges, as an active act. Having invested wisely in real estate and behaving sensibly with money, he was relatively comfortable. Larry Fine, however, was practically bankrupted when Columbia dropped the Stooges, had to sell his Los Feliz home, and could not afford the luxury of retirement. It was Fine who, while on vacation, not surprisingly in Las Vegas, spotted a veteran burlesque comedian named Joe Dorita. Chubby, with facial features that at least resembled Moe's younger brother, Dorita on paper seemed like a plausible fit. This transition was especially rough, with initial stage appearances falling flat to the point where Dorita sported a crew cut and began to be billed as Curly Joe Dorita. Gradually, the Stooges' popularity as a live act started to take off, but this development was probably prompted by another previous business decision out of the Stooges' control. After Columbia shuttered its comedy short production unit, it rapidly started marketing the Stooges through its television production and distribution arm, Screen Gems. Television stations all over the U.S. picked up the Stooges and began counter-programming their films against other juvenile fare like Popeye the Sailor Man and Looney Tunes. Starting in 1958, the Three Stooges quickly became the number one rated children's television program in many large American cities. The Stooges became especially popular in the New York area, appearing on WPIX Channel 11 in various iterations, hosted by Joe Bolton, dressed as a New York City policeman. PIX had lost the rights to The Little Rascals, another popular short comedy series, and The Stooges were a big hit replacement, especially with a whole generation of children unfamiliar with their films from the 40s and early 50s. Unfortunately, because of a Screen Actors Guild negotiated clause that only allowed television residuals to be paid for films produced after 1960, Moe and Larry received no additional compensation from Columbia. Their newfound fame did result in nightclub appearances and spots on such national television shows as Steve Allen and Ed Sullivan. This further catapulted the Stooges, even with the obscure Dorita, to further popularity, increasing their personal appearances fees exponentially. Naturally, this newfound success reignited Hollywood studio interest, the Stooges back with Columbia appearing in Have Rocket Will Travel, a low-budget science fiction feature made for $380,000. When the film grossed almost ten times that amount, Columbia sensed a new franchise possibility. But negotiations stalled on another Stooges project, the three Stooges meet Hercules, when the trio, 
tired of years of Columbia making a fortune while not compensating them appropriately, demanded a large raise and an even bigger piece of any profit. Columbia balked and further alienated the Stooges by slapping together old footage from their two reeler days with material from ventriloquist Paul Winchell and attempting to release this mess as something called Stop, Look, and Laugh. The only stop the Stooges made was to sue to prevent release and began negotiating with other studio entities to create other feature opportunities. 20th Century Fox, perhaps overly enthusiastic, agreed to a much higher than typical salary for Snow White and the Three Stooges. Snow White was portrayed by Olympic figure skating champion Carol Heiss in her first and only starring role and directed by A-lister Walter Lang, who proceeded to inflate the film's budget to over $3.5 million, a process that ensured the film would be a box office disaster. As a fantasy comedy designed for children and featuring the Stooges, the film was viewed primarily in matinee performances for a cost of approximately 50 cents, an admission fee that required 15 million paying matinee customers just to break even. The plot also made little use of the Stooges and with virtually no slapstick, rendering them invisible. The film was such a box office bomb that Lang, Oscar-nominated only five years before for The King and I, was forced to retire. The only Stooge film not shot in black and white, it was especially disliked by Mo Howard, who referred to it as, quote, a technicolor mistake. When a Los Angeles Superior Court judge sided with the Stooges in the stop, look, and laugh dispute, Columbia settled by giving the Stooges a much better deal to produce the epic The Three Stooges Meet Hercules. Columbia stuck to the low-budget formula, producing the film in 13 days for a cost of $450,000. It grossed $2 million, and another immediate Columbia feature was placed in production. The Three Stooges in Orbit ensued and had a similar success. Although Columbia threatened numerous additional attempts to film such direct as The Three Stooges Meet Pinocchio, The Three Stooges Meet Robin Hood, and even The Three Stooges Meet Captain Bly, the Stooges would only appear in two more feature films. The Three Stooges Go Around the World in a Daze, and The Outlaws is Coming. They did occasionally squeeze in cameo appearances in other major Hollywood productions, most notably in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and Four for Texas. They also made numerous commercials, a completely profitable sideline never envisioned during their two reeler days. In 1970, while filming a feature and potential television pilot entitled Kook's Tour, Larry Fine suffered a massive stroke that shut down production and ended any chance of the Stooges returning to television. This was the latest and one of several efforts to get the Stooges back on the small screen, but none were successful. While attempts were made to keep the Three Stooges alive via Emil Sitka replacing Larry Fine, these also went nowhere. Hollywood had moved on to blockbuster franchises like James Bond, and more sophisticated dramas, and suddenly the Stooges' modest profit formula, generated by a younger audience, had little industry appeal. Mo Howard became involved in various independent production ideas, but financing from independent producers fell through, and the major studios had zero interest. Even Larry Fine's death from another stroke on January 24, 1975, did not stop one final attempt to keep working. Actually agreeing to appear in an R-rated comedy, The Jet Set, 
the Mo Howard, Joe Dorita, and Emil Sitka iteration, actually began seriously rehearsing. But only a week before shooting was about to begin, Mo Howard died of cancer on May 4, 1975. Joe Besser and Joe Dorita died in 1988 and 1993, respectively, putting an end to an American comedic era. It would be hard to describe to someone unfamiliar with their work exactly what it was that the Three Stooges did on film. In fact, their appeal is certainly not universal and even disdained by some as too violent, demeaning, or just idiotic. But their success continues, and they remain visible to a national U.S. audience on a daily basis, as well as an American institution. Mo Howard may have been prophetic when asked decades ago as to how long the Stooges could retain their popularity when he stated, Forever is a long time, but with a little luck, we might just make it. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the Three Stooges. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, The Three Stooges Scrapbook by Jeff Lenberg and Joan Howard Moore, and The Three Stooges, an illustrated history by Michael Fleming. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.